as we come now to chapter 8, um, he's, he's going to kind of summarize. He wants to make sure that everybody's getting what he's trying to communicate. And that's an important thing. And so he is going to kind of summarize the, the gist of what he has been saying to them. So uh, picking up in chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Let's go on through verse 6. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, speaking of Christ, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy in the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For God said to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, speaking again of Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So he says, now look, this is the main point of what I'm saying to you. And the main point is about the, um, the superiority of the, the priesthood of Jesus. And so here he just comes right out and makes it crystal clear that we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he's saying, look, this, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, our high priest, Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, he's so far superior to Aaron because remember their uh, struggle was uh, a consideration of returning to the old system. So his main point is that Jesus is greater than all that preceded him. He's greater than Aaron and all of the high priests that followed. Uh, he brought in a new and a better covenant than the one that was established by Moses. And, and here also in the passage, he says that the priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, these were all earthly copies of heavenly realities. So what he's saying is, look, the, reality, the heavenly reality has come. These things were all uh, temporary measures that were pointing to the future and were pointing from earth to heaven. And now all of that has been fulfilled with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So again, he, he's urging them not to loosen their grip on their faith in Christ, uh, but to hold fast and to uh, continue to trust him all the way through. And then he states here uh, that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant that was established on better promises. So ironically, the Jews had lost sight of the fact that God was going to establish a new covenant. Now, 600 years earlier, through Jeremiah the prophet, God spoke and said to them, that the days were coming when he was going to establish a new covenant. Uh, but 
you know, the, the Jews just were so tenaciously holding on to this old covenant when God himself said, I'm going to establish a new covenant because of the inadequacy of the old one. So here they are 600 years down the road. And you know, the irony is that they weren't anticipating this. They weren't expecting this. And that was uh, part of the tragedy of where the people were at, at the time that Jesus came. They had just settled into tradition. They had settled into complacency. It's like, hey, this is what we've got. We've got this law and we're comfortable with it. And this is, this is the end all in uh, our, our relationship with God. But the fact of the matter was, no, that wasn't the case at all. They should have been expecting a new thing to happen. And that was their great mistake. They weren't expecting it. And so when it happened, to a large degree, they missed it. But the, you know, there's a lesson uh, for us in that as well. We need to be careful because the same thing has been repeated over and over again in church history where the, you know, God does something and people enjoy it and they're blessed by it, but then they kind of just settle into it and then it becomes uh, a thing of the past. It becomes a memory. It becomes something that, oh, we're so you know, happy that God did that back then. But there's no expectation of God doing something in the future. And we need, we need to be living with uh, both thankfulness for what God has done in our past, but also with uh, anticipation of God still wanting to do things in the future. I believe that there's still a good future for the church and for the people of God, despite what is going on around us. But as a matter of fact, if you think about what the church is to be and what the gospel is all about, the more messed up the world gets, uh, the greater the possibilities for uh, a work of the spirit become because God works in the midst of these crises. And the whole gospel is about uh, bringing hope to, to men who are in sin, bringing light into a dark situation. And so Jesus, the author says, is the mediator of a new covenant. And now here in uh, verses seven through 13, he uh, tells us about that. So let me read that to you. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So 600 years earlier, God through Jeremiah said, I'm going to make a new covenant. 
And he is going to make a new covenant because the first one was faulty. The first one was faulty. What was the fault of the first covenant? Well, on the the side of the covenant, um, the the problem with it was that it was uh, it was it was external primarily, so it couldn't really affect the heart, and and it's the heart that needs the change. But the the real problem with the first covenant, and we read it right here, because finding fault with them. You see, the problem with the first covenant and the reason why it could never uh, accomplish what was needed, and that was you know, ongoing intimate fellowship with God, uh, was because of man's sinfulness. Because that ongoing uh, intimacy and fellowship with God was contingent upon you know, man's sin being dealt with, but uh, man's inability to live rightly and to attain to the standard of the law uh, caused the law to be really uh, a failure. And so finding fault with them, the problem was in the sinfulness of man. As we pointed out before, Paul says in Romans 7, the law was holy, just, and good, uh, but the problem is with us. Um, I am, the, the law is spiritual, I am carnal, sold under sin. So that was the problem. Now, the law, of course, was a, a contract that God had made with the people of Israel. And uh, it was a two-way contract. God had you know, certain commitments and obligations that he would meet, uh, but those things were conditional. They were contingent upon the faithfulness of the people. And so to put it in, um, you know, kind of legal contractual terms, uh, immediately the people breached the contract. So, you know, it's like the contract is signed. God gives the covenant there at Sinai and okay, here we go. We're, we're committing ourselves to this covenant. We're committing ourselves to follow the Lord. And immediately they, they breached the contract. And even though they did that immediately, God still allows this thing to go on for a long, long time. And he works, you know, despite their breach of the contract. But he says, uh, I'm going to make a new contract. Now, think of it. If you go into a contractual situation with somebody and they, they breach the contract, that pretty much ends your obligation. And you're, you're probably done with that individual. It's not like you're going to go into another uh, contract or covenant with them, normally speaking. But here's where we see the amazing heart of God. God says, you know, they messed up. They broke the contract. I disregarded them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a new covenant. And the amazing thing about this new covenant, as we're going to see, is it's one that they're not going to be able to mess up. That's the, that's the really glorious thing about the new covenant. So let's talk about the new covenant. Well, the new covenant uh, was established by Jesus through his death upon the cross. So that's how the new covenant would be established. It would be established through the death of Jesus. Now, the, I, and, you know, the passage here where the, the quotation, it's a direct quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, 
The, the Jeremiah text uh, doesn't give us the details about how the covenant is going to be established, but uh, the author's going to go on as he goes further into the ninth and half of the 10th chapter to show that the covenant, the new covenant was established similarly to the old covenant. The old covenant was established with blood, the blood of animals. The new covenant is also established with blood, but not the blood of animals, but the blood of God's son. And so it was through the death of Jesus upon the cross that the new covenant was established. And in anticipation of his coming death, Jesus symbolically established the new covenant with the bread and the cup at that final Passover meal that he had with his disciples. And you remember reading this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded, I'm going to quote from Luke, uh, there it says that Jesus, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So in anticipation, now this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. So the covenant wouldn't actually be enacted until Jesus died upon the cross, but symbolically it was enacted there at what we commonly call the last supper. Jesus says this cup, as he passes it around, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So that was the the symbolic act that, um, brought the covenant into existence. Now, I want you to notice as we're looking at the passage here, that God, he's speaking of this covenant having to do with the house of Israel. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then verse 10, for this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So the covenant that we're talking about here was a covenant that was to be made and actually is yet to be made with the house of Israel and Judah. Jesus uh, made it that night there with that handful of followers. They were all Jewish. They were all from the house of Israel or the house of Judah. Uh, but but um, what, what's happened is we as the church we have preceded Israel into the covenant. So the covenant was intended, you know, for them to be the blessing, but we, the church, the Gentiles, who the Jews had no idea were even going to be uh, brought into favor with God, uh, we've not only been brought into favor, we've been brought into the covenant that they have yet to come into. We preceded them into it. And that's what, has happened. Now, they one day will enter in nationally. Israel will one day uh, enter into this covenant, but we, the church, have preceded them. We, we have been there from the beginning. This is the covenant that God made that we, as believers in Jesus, are a part of. And so I want you to see uh, the unique features of this new covenant. And so first of all, we know that the new covenant is internal and affected by the spirit. 
Notice what God said. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So the difference between the old covenant, one of the differences is the old covenant was predominantly external. Remember, it was a covenant that was written on stone. It wasn't written on the heart of a, of a person. It was written on stone. That's external. That's outside. And so a person was to look at those commands written on stone and then seek to conform to them. So the old covenant was external. The new covenant is going to be internal. It's going to be God putting his law in the mind and upon the heart rather than uh, externally upon the stone. It's engraved upon our hearts. Ezekiel gives us a picture of this uh, in the 36th chapter, verses 26 and 27. Listen to what he says. God is, is speaking through Ezekiel, or Ezekiel is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So this is the same covenant as just described in slightly different terms. Really, it's, it's more descriptive. God says, I'm gonna take that heart of stone out of you and I'm gonna put a new heart in you. That's what happens. The heart of stone is a heart that's resistant to the, the will of God. God says, I'm going to take that out, and I'm going to put a new heart in you that's tender, a heart that's sensitive, a heart that's inclined toward my will. And then he makes it clear, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So this is what we've entered into. We've entered into this relationship with God through this covenant that is internal, and it is affected by the Spirit. It's something the Spirit does. And so Paul describes it like this in writing to the Philippians. He says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So you see, it's, it's from the inside out. And oftentimes when we're you know, looking to describe to people what it is that we're talking about with this you know, relationship with Jesus that we have and so forth. We, we, we describe it like that, don't we? We talk, you know, it's about God doing something on the inside that, um, will then manifest itself outwardly. In the days of Jesus, the religious leaders, Jesus said to them, their problem was they made everything look great out on the outside, but their, their hearts were full of corruption. He said, outwardly, you're like, you're like whitewashed tombs. They would, uh, they, would, they would wash the outsides of the tombs and they would decorate them and they looked nice from the outside. But of course, you open the tomb and they were full of corruption and dead men's bones. Jesus said to the religious leaders, he said, that's what you're like. You look good on the outside, but inside you're, all, you're full of all of this corruption. What God does is he comes through his spirit in this new covenant and he does a work inside of us. He does it from the inside out. He puts a new heart in us with new desires, new uh, interest and passions and things like this. And, and we find that our spiritual life is working from the inside out 
rather than the opposite. So the new covenant is internal and affected by the Spirit. Secondly, the new covenant is primarily relational. It's primarily relational. And we see that in these words. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the whole thing that God was wanting all the while. He was wanting the relationship with the people. But under the old covenant, really the the big message of the old covenant was exclusion. The old covenant was essentially saying to people, you can't come close to God. And so there was a Uh, there was a sacrificial system that had to intercede. There was a priesthood who offered the sacrifices. Uh, There was a tabernacle and there was, remember, a veil and there was a holy place that nobody could get to because of the sin issue that the first covenant was never able to really deal with. The relational thing that God was seeking was not really uh, available under this old covenant. And the beauty of the new covenant is that it has brought us into the relationship that we need that God intended from the very beginning. You know, all that Jesus did, all, all that uh, happened when he descended from heaven and, and came to earth and took upon himself human form and uh, ultimately went to the cross and died. You know what all of that was for? It was also we could have a relationship with God, but it was also so he could enjoy a relationship with us. How, you know, we, we think quite often, you know, uh, when it comes to the, the, the relationship with God, we, we sort of often think of ourselves, maybe not even consciously, but we think of ourselves as the ones who are longing for this, desiring this, pursuing after this. And sometimes we think, well, God, you know, I really want a relationship with, with you. Where are you? And how come you're not communicating? But you know, the, the biblical picture is all we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to his own way. We, we were going the opposite direction. We weren't interested in a relationship with God. God was interested in a relationship with us. And that's why Jesus came. And that's what this covenant is. It is primarily relational. Jesus, when he's praying to his father, the, the prayers recorded in John chapter 17, and there in speaking to the father, he, he expresses that the very uh, intention of this new covenant, uh, that they might know you, Jesus said, the only true God and me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The reason Jesus came into the world was because God wanted us to have a personal uh, relationship with him. And then thirdly, we go on and we see that the new covenant is intimately personal. Notice what it says here, that none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You see, it's not going to be a situation where only a select few are the ones who know the Lord and then they just kind of you know, instruct or encourage others, hey, listen, you need to know the Lord. God says, no, Uh, this is going to be a situation now where everyone knows me. And this is the beauty of this new covenant. Everyone potentially can know the Lord personally. And it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter your uh, 
education, and it doesn't matter your, uh, you know, ethnicity. None, none of those things matter. All shall know me, from the least to the greatest, from the most in, uh, most you know significant, well-known person. They have the option, the possibility of knowing God. The most insignificant person in the sense that, you know, who is this person? Nobody even knows who they are. But God knows who they are. And so the new covenant is intimately personal. And the idea here, all shall know me, it's know me in a personal, experiential fashion. Knowing God. If you you know, anybody who claims to be a Christian and who can't say, I know God personally has missed the point of Christianity. And I say that because, you know, there are people that are sitting in churches all across this land today who would consider themselves Christians. That's why, why they're sitting in churches. But if you ask them, do you know God personally? They would say, well, I don't know. I, I, don't think so. Uh, no, I, I don't know him personally. Well, if that's the case, you missed the point. This is the point that we come into this personal, intimate relationship with God. That is one of the wonderful features of the new covenant. But then another is this, that the new covenant is of pure grace. It is a pure grace. Listen to what it says here. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. On what basis? Simply God said, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's pure grace right there. It's not, I will forget their sins if they do this and if they stop doing that. And, you know, then I'm going to, no, it's, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, the, the, Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, of course, there was a, an element of grace there. There had to be, or there, there could have been no relationship with God whatsoever there because, like we already pointed out, the people immediately broke the covenant right after they had received it. So there was the component of grace that, that kept God you know, mercifully dealing with them all throughout those centuries and, for, and so forth. Uh, but it was, a, it was a legal system with a grace component. The new covenant is pure grace. There's no legal element to it. God just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive their sins and their lawless deeds. I am choosing to remember them no more, not because of what they've done or haven't done. It's something that is rooted purely in his grace. The new covenant is of pure grace. And then, finally, the new covenant is unilateral. And this, this, to me, is the, really the amazing feature of it. It's unilateral. Unilateral uh, means having only one side. In other words, it's a one-sided covenant. And going back to what I was saying earlier, so... In you know, God makes a contract with the people. They break, they breach the contract. They violate it. And God says, all right, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this time I'm going to leave you guys out of it. Because if I make it, 
And, and, and if it's contingent on you doing something, we're going to have the same, we're going to repeat the same situation over and over again. So God makes a unilateral covenant, or another way we could uh, describe it is an unconditional covenant. The condition of the covenant is not based on you or me. All the conditions of the covenant are based upon God's promises and his faithfulness. And when you look at what he says about the covenant, it becomes clear that this is the case. I want you to notice here in verses 10 through 12, five times God stresses what he will do. Notice, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor or none his brothers say, know the Lord. Uh, For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Did you notice that you are not in that covenant? Neither am I. It's all what God is going to do. And that is the absolute beauty of the new covenant. It's unilateral. It's unconditional. It's God saying, look, I'm going to do this. You, you can't do it. But I will do it. And that brings us to the final point. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. And later in Hebrews, he refers to it in that way. He speaks of the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. It is everlasting. It is unalterable. It is unbreakable. It's an everlasting covenant. It means when once it's entered into, it is permanent. It is unalterable. It is unbreakable. And, and one of the reasons that I uh, am you know, passionate and somewhat adamant about the idea that you know, once you've truly received Christ, that is, a, that is an eternal situation that can't be altered is because of the, the nature of the covenant being unilateral. And when you go back and you look at the, the promises that were made to Israel about this covenant, whether it's in Jeremiah or Ezekiel or a few of the other prophets, this, this is what comes across over and over again. God says, when I establish a new covenant, you're going to be my people and uh, we're going to be in a relationship forever and it's never going to end. That's one of the features of it. It is an it is now where he's contrasting it. It's not going to be like before when you drifted away from me, when you fell away, when you went into sin. That's never going to happen again. I'm going to bring you into this covenant and you're going to be my people forever. And there's going to be a perpetual blessing there. And so, of course, like I said, we have entered into that very covenant that they have yet to enter into. We preceded them into it. But what's true of them in the future is true of us in the present. That for us, it is as well, obviously, because it can't be otherwise, it is an everlasting, unalterable, and it is an unbreakable covenant. So when you look at it like this, 
you say, well, okay, well, what, is, what does that leave for us? And, you know, the answer is nothing. The, the answer is nothing. Let me quote to you a, a quote that I came across this week. In regard to the, this question, what does that leave for us in, in light of this unilateral covenant and so forth? Nothing, just be still, shut up, and listen to what God the Almighty, Creator and Redeemer is saying to His world and to you and me in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. So this is it. We just believe it. We believe it. But understand this. When the Bible speaks of belief, it's not giving mere intellectual assent to something. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe that. Well, yeah, I believe that happened. Uh, No, when the Bible uses the word belief or or when the Bible talks about faith, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I I believe this. I, I really believe this. I believe this that so much so that I act upon it. See, the person who enters into the new covenant and receives all the benefits that we're talking about is a person who believes it, a person who says, I believe that to be true. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that I'm a sinner and I need him to be a savior. I believe that. That's how we enter into the covenant, through belief. You could describe it maybe just, you know, just to, for you know, explanation's sake, it's like believing, believing with their whole heart. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe this. I think of the situation that we have recorded in Acts where uh, Philip goes down to the Gaza area and there's the, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's traveling back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. And as he's going along, he's reading the prophet Isaiah and he happens to be at the 53rd chapter and Philip goes up and he joins him on his chariot and he, he says to him, he says, um, you know, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, no, I don't understand. How can, how can I understand unless somebody teach me? He says, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? And it says at that point, Philip began to preach to him, Jesus. So Philip told him, hey, no, this passage in Isaiah is a prophecy about Jesus of Nazareth. And he tells the story about Jesus and his coming and his dying and his rising again. And as he's telling the story, the the Ethiopian um, diplomat, he says, they, they come across some water and he says, wait, wait, stop. He says, what prevents me from being baptized? I, I believe what you're saying. I want to be baptized. And Philip says this. He says, if you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the son of God, you may be baptized. And he did. And Philip took him there and he baptized him. But that's the idea. So it's a unilateral covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. What is our part? Our part is to believe it. And as we believe it, we enter in. God puts his spirit in our heart. He begins that work internally that will ultimately, through the process of time, more and more manifest itself externally. But it brings us into what God always desired, that intimate, personal relationship with him where we go on in our lives uh, living in the grace of God. 
and and our sins and our lawless deeds, he remembers no more. You know, I think about how uh, every single day, my sins and my lawless deeds are remembered no more by God. We all sin. We might not go out and proactively sin, but we certainly sin sin in our minds, we sin in our hearts, and those things technically under the old system would would separate us, but because it's a, it's a covenant of pure grace, our sins and our lawless deeds, he remembers no more. And so this is indeed a better covenant established upon better promises. How could those foolish first century Jews want to go back to the old system? It's obvious they didn't understand the true nature of the old system, and they had lost sight of the glory of the new covenant. But God help us to uh, maintain that clear perspective and understanding this is the new covenant. There's nothing that could even approach it in glory and beauty, and it's the best possible situation for us. God has brought us into an everlasting covenant with himself, and he's made himself responsible for making sure it's ultimately and totally fulfilled uh, in our lives personally and in his church collectively. So Lord, we thank you for that today so much. And Lord, so often we find ourselves uh, weighed down under the burden of our own failures and our own inabilities. And we think of how far short we fall of of the standard of righteousness. And, and yet, Lord, when we do that, it's obvious that we've either lost sight of or we've not really understood the nature of this covenant that we are in with you. And Lord, we thank you today that it is a covenant of pure grace. And we thank you that it is a unilateral covenant, Lord. It's that our, our name is not in it. Our signature is not on the page, Lord. It's yours and yours alone. And we thank you, Lord, that it's just through simple belief, true heart faith, that you work all of these things out in our lives. And so we pray that you would do that as we move forward in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.